Hi, and welcome to She's the Boss Chats. I'm your host, Jules Brook, and in the show, I interview amazing women and female founders about what it is that they're doing and why they're doing it. It's all about us lifting up the women around us. Linda Bradford, I am so excited to have you as my She's the Boss Chats guest. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this interview. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm super, super excited as well to be chatting to you live in your studio. (laughs) My studio, which anyone who (laughs) listens to this would know is my bedroom, and you're over in (laughs) Bali. And I'm in Bali. Technically not in my bedroom, but hey, it's but, definitely. Well, Lex is sort of a studio. It's an office. Yeah. All right. So, well, let's start off by why don't you tell everybody what it is that you do now? What's your business? So, right now, it's Surf Getaways. Yeah. And Surf Getaways is a company that is focused on travel and activities, primarily surfing for women. Yep. And, and we take women surfing um, all over the world. And yeah. Australia, obviously, as well. Um, and about 60% of our customers are in their sort of 40s plus and have never surfed before or are just starting out, starting out on their surfing journey. Oh, I love it. So the big question, of course, is why? Why did you even think of this? Well, the usual, because I like surfing. <laughs> and I wanted to be able to do something that I thought finally, after years of Slogging away in corporate and, you know, four startups, this is my fifth, um, that I would do something that I enjoyed doing. And it took me a few years to find it, but it's funny how some things that are uh, your passion in life, one day you wake up and you think, actually, maybe there's a business here. So that's pretty much how it started. I um, came out of corporate, came out of a very successful startup and just basically decided, you know what? I'm going to travel around for a couple of years and then see what I want to do. And, um, yeah, started to try and go on a couple of surfing holidays myself during that period. And yeah. Yeah, there was nothing there. You couldn't, if you were a woman, unless you wanted to go and hang out with a bunch of backpackers in a bar somewhere and lie in a hammock as your accommodation, that was pretty much the option. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, of course. Uh, And it's just so cool. And what a brilliant, I just think it's a brilliant idea. But of course, you just alluded to a wildly successful startup. So uh, before we go any further, I want to hear your story, Belinda. So I'm going to take you, get you to take me back to when you were a little girl. And I'm interested to know where were you born or slash grew up in primary school, what your mum and dad did and how many brothers and sisters you have, if any. Oh, my goodness. There might be some prisoners taken. <laughs> That's all right. Um, okay. I um, was born in Sydney. Yeah. But I've been pretty much raised a gypsy. I started school in New Guinea in Port Moresby. Oh, okay. And my father was an engineer um, for um, big sort of earth-moving projects like dams or roads and, you know, major yeah, okay. construction projects around the world. Um so, yeah, when I finished school, I was in boarding school. My parents were in the Philippines. Um, oh, my God. Wait, hang on. You're jumping. You're going too far. Go back. So you were a little girl. You you were, you were yeah. grew up in, in Papua New Guinea or did primary school there. Do you have brothers and sisters? Primary school, then then back to Australia. Yes, I have one elder brother. Right. Um, um, and who, interestingly, is a, he's a captain for um, Emirates Airways. He's a, he's a pilot. Oh, so the travel bug is in both of you, which is funny because – I grew up um, in the British Army, but we moved around all the time and I've got that bug as well. And I reckon, you know, if you start doing it really early in life, uh, you really just catch it. Or if you've caught it, then you can't get rid of it. So interesting that... You know what, though? Well, I also think there's some truth in it being genetic because my great aunt yeah. was actually one of Australia's first aviators. Stop May it. Bradford. Go, and I know, I know. Go look it up. She um, was ex- Extraordinary. She was like in the Amelia Earhart kind of ill. Yeah, well, she must have been. If, she, if... Yeah, and she um, 
She was pretty amazing. She was also one of the first women in Australia that was certified to be a welder because in those days you used to have to repair your own aircraft when you were racing and she did all that stuff. Wow. And so she went and learned her trade so she could do it herself. So that's extraordinary. I've got some amazing photos from yeah, she's in the main But you know what? It sounds it sounds a bit like you were inspired by her and I wonder is it genetic or is it the role yes. model? I don't know whether maybe, it's. I don't know. Maybe it's a bit of both. Yeah, maybe yeah. It's a bit of both. But how, how... I didn't really learn a lot about her story until later in life, actually. So wow. She was never really. She was never really talked about when we were kids, and I think it was because she didn't really. She was a bit of a black sheep. Yeah, I family. bet. She didn't really fit well, the she, mold. She, yeah. She's um, doing a whole lot of things that women didn't normally do in those days. What did your mum do? Yeah. Mum was really um, a stay-at-home mum and she yeah. did. She was sort of a bookkeeper, you know, worked for accountants, worked in finance departments as a bookkeeper. Mum actually um, started her life before she married. She was um, very creative. Um, oh, wow. Pianist, classical music, all of that sort of stuff. Wow. Um, which, which amazingly, how's this for a great story, in her 80s, She's just gone back to music and it's complete, like she's like a completely different person. Isn't that an extraordinary it is. thing well, when, when you go back to your passion and you and she's discovered choir and, and music again at 86. Oh, I love that. I love, love, love that. Well, you know, they say that even dementia patients these days, uh, one of the things that you should do a lot with them is music because it's a memory that people have in their bones, I guess, or in their sort of muscle memory or whatever. So it just comes back even, even when people stop remembering, you know, that they've got children, they'll still remember certain songs, certain music. But that's brilliant that she's doing that. I love that. Okay. Yeah, no, it's cool. So, so yeah, I um, and then my, we, I sort of travelled around a bit like your story, Jules. I travelled around with, obviously, my father was moving from project to project. So I did, you know, school all over the place. So. Um, mostly Australia after New Guinea. Okay. So did you like school, Belinda? Were you good at school? Let's go primary school and then we'll move on to high school. First, do you have any memories of primary school oh, being primary good or bad? Because I was always a new girl. Yeah, yeah, I right? know that so feeling. So you always, you build, yeah, I know. Yeah. And so you build that skill, don't you, of just walking into a room and going, ah, well, I reckon I reckon you go one of two ways. So my theory is you either become really introverted because I've met a lot of women who've had that kind of a uh, background and they are sort of the bookworm who would be in the library because they were always the new girl and they were terrified about right. making friends. Or like you say, you learn to just sail into a room, become friends with people very fast, <laughs> which yeah, obviously you I was did. I a bit of both. I was a bit of a nerd at school, especially in high school. I was a bit of a wuss. Okay, so where um, was high school? Was that Sydney? Yeah, high school was Sydney, mostly in boarding school. Um, did you I like board? Did you like boarding school? In public school, I, the first year I hated it because it was like being in prison with a whole bunch of women. Institutionalized. Like, what, what age? So this is from year seven or later? This was no, no. This was from about year nine. Right. Um, the end of year nine, year ten, and then through to. The end of high school, yeah. Okay, so, so and, and I was living boarding in those days. So the school that I went to, you didn't, you weren't just boarding like where you could come out every weekend. You boarded and you came out for a weekend once a month. Wow, well that was that was more than I. Daily. That's amazing. That's more than I was allowed. I my parents lived in Germany and I went to boarding school in yeah. England from grade five. And yeah. uh, we would only go, we'd probably only see mum and dad and my brothers, my younger brothers who lived at home. My other brother was at boarding school too, probably twice a year, maybe summer holidays and then maybe one other one. And other than that, we were farmed out to old crusty relatives that would be really, yes. you know, oh, no, I know that just meeting people that you don't know and have anything <laughs> in common with. <laughs> and all of a sudden you're at their dinner table. That's right. No. Okay, so you oh, went went it? through to year 12. Did you enjoy high school? I mean, once you got over the border, you know, the, the being away from home. The shock, the shock and awe. I actually did. i tell you why. The girls' school that I went to was quite an extraordinary one. I won't name it. because Why? <laughs> why? Um, tell us. Well, it's a, it's, a, no, it's a great school. I went to a school called Ravenswood in, um, in Sydney, which is a very sort of, was a very liberal 
like Doug Anthony's daughter, as an example, was still captain. It was a very liberal party bastion, sort of very, um, oh. I wouldn't say right wing, but very conservative. Oh, I thought when you meant liberal. I thought when you meant liberal that it was quite bohemian, but it's the other, well, the liberal well, party yeah. kind of liberal. Well, sort of, but yep. the, the sort of other side of that is very unique for that time, and I don't know if it had anything to do with the sort of Liberal Party as such, but they very much, the, the headmistress, all women in the senior, senior management of the school, um, but they really had an ethos. It was sort of looking back at it now, I really think that formed a lot of my views of of being a woman, to be honest. I'm um, sure it did. Because she was, even though she was quite, her name was Phyllis Evans. Yeah. And she was had one of those big blue Griffon hairdressers. <laughs> what is going on with your hair? Anyway, she was right, she was definitely out there in terms of the land of conservative thinking. However, she had this ethos where her the way she, it was sort of brutal but at the same time perfect, where she had a belief that as a as a young woman, you could do anything. And the only thing that was stopping you was either your attitude, your your aptitude for what you were studying, your willingness. In her Oh, I love her. Clearly view of the world, there was nothing you couldn't do. And if you couldn't do it, well there was something wrong with you kind of view. Like yeah, right, right. you were approaching it, right? Yeah. I remember, how's this a great story? When I first finished school, so I would have been 17 and a half. Yeah. And I was, I decided at the time I was obsessed with fashion. God, God help me. And I wanted <laughs> to work in fashion. Now, I hadn't even start, I hadn't even really, you know, figured out what university degree. And I just knew when I finished sporting school, I wanted to get a job. I need, like, money was the thing, right? And fashion seemed like the place I needed to be because I was just determined. Right. I took myself to Trent Nathan. Remember him? Yes, so I do. Trent Nathan. Yeah. He had an office. His head office was in um, down in Woolloomooloo in Sydney. I, I took myself off there one day, all dressed to the nine, yeah. sat in the waiting room and told the receptionist that I was there to see Trent because I wanted to work for him. But now, you didn't have an appointment. You? you just sat down and no, did, oh, my God, you're no, brilliant. And I, just, I decided the only way they'd get rid of me was someone was going to have to talk to me. And, of course, she was gobsmacked, the receptionist. They ended up sending out, who was just lovely, the managing director of the company, because, of course, Trent was God knows where he was. He wasn't there. He certainly wasn't talking to me. Yeah. Um, They sent out the managing director who took me into his office, God love him, and sat me down and said, okay, so you want to work in fashion, you want to work here, all right, let's talk through what you might need to do because... You know, when you come to work for someone, like he gave me the whole story of, look, actually, you have to bring something to the job. You can't just come from home. Oh, I love him. Anyway, but that was all. I mean, that, that sort of ballsy approach, that came out of that That, that woman, that mind. teacher. It was highly yeah. competitive, highly competitive. It was very, um, you know, very scholastic, very focused on achievement. But at the same time, you were really bred to to understand that you your limitations were were in you, not outside of you. Oh, I love so that. So that was a pretty good... Yeah, yeah that that's amazing. Good. That's such a good grounding. Yeah. And I know that uh, I was lucky enough to have a similar kind of a school and I'm still really good friends with all the girls I went to school with and here we are in our mid-50s and we catch up and we're still like that. We still think we can do whatever we want if we just apply yes. ourselves. Like yes. it's that really, it's a wonderful, yeah. wonderful thing to imbue in girls if you can. All right, so uh, so you've left school and you obviously didn't go to uni. You went off to Trent Nathan. So how did that end up? No, I didn't go to Trent Nathan. I went to uni. Oh, no, okay. I, went, I actually, what I did, no, I didn't get a job with Trent Nathan. That was a disaster. I went away from there going, oh, yeah, right, I need to learn. <laughs> okay. I'll look at something so, else then. I went, yeah, I went and got a summer job at good old Grace Brothers, the, the oh, yeah. department store. Yeah. And they had an internship program. You know, they used to do that. I don't think they do it much anymore. Maybe they do it at some of the big consulting firms. But you know where you can become like a, a yes. corporate management sort of Trainee. Trainee. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I got one of those roles. Right. I, I, t- I took a summer job after the Trent Nathan disaster <laughs> yeah. just to get money working in a retail store yeah. over the holidays. Yeah. And um, this, um, the Grace Brothers sort of thing, I think I must have seen it because I was working in retail at the time and I thought, oh, well, I can get money and be a management guru. 
And I ended up doing quite well. And I didn't even graduate the program, but I became the first and youngest female um, in the buying group. Wow. You know, in those days when, you know, like a bit like are you being served, like you'd go to a buying meeting for the menswear group and there'd be all these buyers in a big room sitting in a big sort of horseshoe and there's a director at the end and you'd all have to answer what was you wear, what you were doing. You're like, I was the first and the youngest female I'd ever hired in that environment. It was pretty funny at the time because I was like, what? Okay, I'm going to do that. They, um, it was so unique. They did a big thing apparently to all the other um, management trainees because you're supposed to normally finish your internship, but I didn't even finish that. And then because of the – I then got promoted very quickly to being the youngest buyer. I was doing their high-end, high fashion for Grace Brothers for their national chain. Oh, my God, that sounds, like, that sounds like a dream job. Did you love it? I know. I was 21 and I was in charge of I don't know how many millions of dollars. Like. Yeah, it was pretty um, incredible. Pretty, pretty amazing, really, when you think back on it now. Yeah. So, did you enjoy it, and how long did you last in that role? I did enjoy it. I worked there, and I learnt. You know, you can imagine in those days because it was such a structured, formal sort of environment. There was no sort of innovation, any of that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, I learnt really a lot of my business skills in that the foundation in that environment um, because it was before we even had like, you know, the full-scale digitisation of, you know, of all, all of that hadn't happened. Well, I don't, I don't want to say you're, how old you are, but I would have thought it was well before digitisation, wasn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, so every, everything's I been done in, in... Towards the end. Everything towards done in... Towards the end, I think we got our first computers. Yeah, I was going to say, so everything done in triplicate on the, I was thinking about that. I used to work in newspapers and in order to do the ordering system, you know, when a client bought an ad, you'd have to write things in triplicate and give the pink sheet to the one department and the green sheet to another and the yellow one into your (laughs) folder, all that kind of really old fashioned stuff that now you think, oh, you just, you know, put it on a computer and send it to a few people. But um, it is. So where did, where did, where did Grace Brothers lead to? What was the next thing? So what I did in between, I sort of had two roles. I went overseas. I did the classic, you know, 21, go overseas for two years kind of. I did all that sort of where, stuff. Where did you and go? Where did you go first? I, I spent a year in Europe. Okay, um, great. You know, floating around doing stuff as you do. Well, in those days it was a rite of passage. My God, everyone on. Yeah, bartending work in London. <laughs> no, I wouldn't. I do I um I just really rolled around I just I had friends that were working in travel in Europe that were travel consultants and I lived with them in Italy and then I lived with their family in Holland and yeah I had a great time wow know. sounds amazing right and then I came back and I did I did I got another job back at Grace Brothers I did um buying work in cosmetics and you know the whole female fashion side which by the way I hated <laughs> I don't know why but I ended up hating it ah everyone was so you can imagine in that sort of an environment in those days where the department stores really ruled the the whole sort of premise of what was fashion, there were no influences in those days. There were no independent no. sort of insights. It was all driven by what the department stores advertised. Right, yes. And so the level of bitchiness was just Next completely level. surpassing my understanding. Yeah, yeah. It's... I'm enough capable of. Anyway, so... Um, yeah, so that was that. Then what did I do after that? Now, this is a good, good question. I'm just trying to think now. Where am I up to? Um, <laughs> so what, what are you up to? You're probably up to 23, 24 now, are you? Something like that? Uh, a bit older? No, it would have been by about, would have been, yeah, 23, 25 maybe. Okay. And then I went to, I worked, started working for a company, a duty-free company owned by a Airways, and they um, had a huge project in Hawaii of all places. So oh, they lovely. Me <laughs> and where you, you learned to surf. <clears throat> Correct. Right. This is where the surfing started. Um, and I spent five years living there. Okay. Um, and then I came back to Australia, worked for Pontius for quite a few years. Do, doing what? So years, and that, doing what? I was um, in their buying group again, and I prepared a lot of, the contracting for all of their marketing, advertising, their big campaigns, you know, their big Yeah, yeah. Okay. We are Australia thing. I did all that sort of stuff with the marketing team. And right. then I did their in flight entertainment. 
and was sitting across the commercials of all of that. So tell and me about, actually, yeah, because this is going to lead to the startup, but tell me what was going on within Flight Entertainment when you were working with Qantas before you went off and did your startup? What what was what did uh, what did that entail? Well, Colouring books, most <laughs> Colouring books, yeah. magazines, and newspapers being distributed. No, it was the beginnings of you know everyone used to get on an aircraft in those days and used to have that sort of I don't know like a half a dozen movie choices depending oh, on yes. what route you were on and all that yep. sort of stuff. And it was a really big deal that like oh what movie are you going to watch kind of scenario. yes absolutely. And it was the beginning of the evolution of in-flight entertainment. So there was starting to be um, theories around, okay, can Wi-Fi exist in this environment? So that technological conversation was starting. It hadn't arrived, but it was clearly evident that that environment was going to be commercialised a lot more than okay. it had been. Okay, all right. Yeah. So I was sort of at the front end of that, and that's how I ended up getting hired by Time Warner from Qantas yeah. to go to Hong Kong because they were exploring... Um, distribution of Time Warner content. So that's the three Time Warner companies, Time yeah. Magazines, Warners and Turner. Into which, which is um, broader. So Warner Brothers movies is what you're talking about as well as. Correct. Yep, yep, okay. As Turner. Well, yeah, that's Turner pretty TV exciting. And and was, um, yeah, so was that in Australia? Sorry, sorry. Was that in Australia? No, that was Hong Kong. Was wow, Hong Kong. I'm loving your career so far. Okay. So you were doing all of that in Hong Kong, sort of seeing that there was this gap opening up in the market. So what happened next? Well, that Time Warner is very, very conservative. Like I know a lot of people don't sort of realise that the Time Warner as an entity is really just a, a listing, you know, it's a group listing for a, for a stock market. Each one of those companies is run independently. Right. So the ability to integrate the distribution or get, consistent commercial models across that environment with those three companies was almost next to impossible. Right. Which was also the reason the AOL merger and all of that failed. But, um, I mean, I can remember sitting in meetings in Hollywood in, in on the Warner lot in Warner, in Warner Studios talking about um, them thinking they were, they were going to be able to control the pirating of films with, the, with you know, with the emergence of the power of the internet. And you're sitting in the room going, you guys are insane. This like, have you been to China? Like, have you been to Asia? And of course, I was living there, so I was looking at them, going, "Guys, the genie's out of the bottle. You have to try and commercialize what you can. You're not going to be able to stop it." But so there was a very limited understanding inside Time Warner of technology, and right. because I was out in front, and so I was giving presentations at international conferences about, you know, where in-flight entertainment was going and what, what the commercial models were going to look like in the next, you know, five to ten years. And um, I could see they weren't going to do it. So I'm, I ended up quitting and I ended up getting, which is a pretty amazing story because it's not very often this happens. No, so I know. I, Tell I us the story. Dollars. Tell us the story. I, I got a million dollars. So I left. Yeah. And with another guy um, who didn't last very long in the startup, but anyway, he helped me in the beginning. But... <laughs> A little bit of the work. Um, over about, I gave myself two weeks, two maybe three weeks, to put the commercial model together, and I built that profusely smoking cigarette with my laptop on my coffee table in Hong Kong. <laughs> okay. And, and built the business model, and then through some connections, um, went and pitched the business model to some venture capital guys out of New York. And and can you believe first pitch, first meeting, a million dollars. Right there. That that is. It's one of those. That's one of those so. Like, it's so yeah, beyond it's extraordinary. I know, no, it's not even normal now. When in Australia, <laughs> VC VC funding is going to less than one percent of women. Most of I that know. is you know under under the million dollars, and you've just gone off in what nineteen eighty whatever it was or nineteen ninety something, and raised a yeah. million bucks when yeah. that was really and, like three or five million now. Amazing. I do remember I was, I mean, I have a background in marketing, so I understood the power of messaging. I do remember the presentation opened with a statement that said, there is a country the size of China, or well, there is a, there is a, there is a, 
community or an opportunity the size of the population of China currently orbiting the Earth on any day of the week and they have yet to be commercialised for internet, Wi-Fi, but it's coming. Because, see, I had all of the relationships with Boeing, um, the Panasonic group out of yeah, the US, yeah. and um, the- Honeywell. So I had a lot of those guys already prepared to write contracts with, for me with this new business. I was already working with them. Yeah, right. Um, wow. That was, that was extraordinary success only to be tempered with a catastrophic disaster, which so what we shouldn't we- even laugh about, but... That company was worth $55 million one day and then on the 12th of September, immediately after 9-11, it was worth nothing. Oh, my God, the Belinda. The entire market had disappeared. Yeah, the entire market had disappeared overnight. Oh. Um, and I was on a United flight in, in the US when on the, on, on the, or just entering the US from Hong Kong the day that happened. So, so what do you do, Belinda, when, when, when you've hooked? I mean, how many years did you put into it at that stage? Ten years? Oh, God, no. Two? Two. So you've been working on it for two years. It's just about to tip and yeah. and then the bottom falls yeah. out of the market. Why didn't you hang on? Why Why couldn't you say, well, two years from now, everyone will be back up in the air and everything will be fine? You know, I think I probably would have. I think me being in the US, so I was actually one of the first aircraft entering American airspace. We were just off the coast of California when the planes went into the tower. Right. And then they um, shut down airspace. So we were diverted to Honolulu and it was one of, I still haunts me. I've flown an enormous amount in my life and um, I remember because I've lived in Hawaii, I knew there was something going on in the aircraft. I actually thought the aircraft had been hijacked. So what did they do? They just made an announcement and said there's something that's happened, we're all going to have to just land no, now. No, they didn't. That was They pretended you were landing in California. Oh, my God. Went, that's Diamond Head. And then not only that, they had F-18s um, on the wings of the aircraft, so they, we were being escorted in. by, yep, and when you looked down at the tarmac, it was full military operation underway, tanks, the whole nine yards. And if you looked out past the main island of, of Oahu out to sea, out the window, you could see all the warships steaming out to sea. So oh, I, my God. That was absolutely, it was quite World traumatizing. War. And when, was. When, yeah, exactly. And when they, they, and it was all very, you know, because in the United States, you have to understand, for Australians, it's, it's not, you, you don't really realize, but they really thought they were at war. Oh no. No oh, no, Belinda, so, I mean, I yeah. would say anyone listening who's old enough would remember, but I know that I woke up that morning to feed my newborn baby and I was just about to start breastfeeding, turned on the telly and went, oh, my God, saw the first plane go in and yeah. thought, terrible accident, how awful. I mean, same as everyone. Yeah. Second plane goes yeah. in and you go, what the hell Uh-oh. is happening? Then yeah. there's that yeah. report of it's also happening at the Pentagon and you go, absolutely, yeah. it's World War Three is starting right now in front of my yeah. eyes and I don't know what to do. Yeah, exactly. Well, so I was we were put down on the ground there and the, the aircraft was taken over by the military. They came onto the aircraft. Yeah. They, said, um, they actually said America is at war. Oh, my God. So, <laughs> yeah. Oh. And, so, and the aircraft was full of... Chinese tourists that couldn't speak any English. I felt so sorry for uh, them because they had no idea. And of course, they called the airlines called the force majeure lever, which meant you're on your own. Like everything. Luckily, I knew. I just went my um where I used to live in um Hawaii, in Honolulu. Yeah. Yeah. The, the building had a it was like condos, but the bottom floors were a hotel. Right. And so I just went straight there. But they turned off all the televisions in the airport. They wouldn't. No one would tell you what was going on because they had no idea at that stage no. who was doing what. Right. So I remember getting to the hotel, and I remember even asking the um, the concierge, and, the, and they wouldn't tell me anything. They just said, "Ma'am, you need to go to your room. It'll be on the TV." And I'm like, "Okay." So finally, so that happened, and I think that was really terrifying. Really changed. Well, and it changed my, my – I had an apartment in a very nice part of L.A., Laguna Beach, which if anyone knows Laguna Beach, it's like the, you know, the Palm Beach of, of – of, um, L.A., right. L.A., it's a very expensive, very nice area. I had a very, like you said, a very successful sort of startup. Things were going very well. I was very well regarded in the business 
perspective. But I literally had a briefcase with a change of underwear in it because I was going from one apartment to my my other apartment. And I'm thinking, if it was World War Three, what have, like what is none of this matters? It was a very pivotal sort of point in my thinking, and and I think it did inform my thinking going forward of whatever I was going to do. There has to be an element of something that I want to do in it. It's like I wanted to bring back that purpose it took me a long time to sort of understand how to build that ship something really clicked in me where I went I actually flew into California after that I shut down my entire apartment in 24 hours yep got out went back to Hong Kong shut down Hong Kong within two weeks and flew back to Australia where it was safe. And I think all of us who were living in Australia were very aware that how lucky we were that we were so far away from everything. You know, like we spend, you spend a lot of your life, if you love traveling as you do, and I do, thinking, oh my God, we are so far away from everywhere. But there are times, and that was one of them, where we all went, thank God, because we're not going to be on the radar. We're not strategically, you know, going to be on the radar of any any terrorists for a while anyway. I mean, I do remember thinking I'm from Melbourne that maybe they would go for Chadston or they'd go for the (laughs) Sydney Harbour Bridge. Like we would all talk about where where should we not go to because if they're going to target something, they'll target that. So, um, yeah. And it was quite, it was quite real. It was quite, very real. Oh, wow. It was, it was yeah. really, it, I reckon it took two or three weeks before we even sort of went, okay, maybe there's not going to be an attack immediately. You know, it was, it just felt like every day, are they going to come? Are we, are we going to wake up and find that there's been, something's been bombed or it was, yeah. it was very, yeah, very was scary. Surreal. All right. So you moved back yeah. to Australia and I'm assuming you moved back to Sydney. Was that correct? I actually did, but I went and did like the whole refind yourself thing in Byron Bay for about six months. I oh, did oh, good on you! <laughs> all sorts of rebirthing. I surfed a lot, obviously. Yeah. But I did all sorts of alternative things, and because I sort of thought as well, well, <clears throat> I'm never going to get this time. If you think about it, my whole industry, which had been aviation for, you know, ever years, yeah, got grounded. All of a sudden, gone. Yeah, yep. it's just disappeared. And I've just had the fright of my life in the United States. So I'm going to go and surf and not think about anything for a while. And yeah, something will happen. Yep. Something will. So I do have a lot of really alternative friends up around the Byron Bay area, very grounded but very alternative, which is fantastic because, you know, in their eyes, this was all a thing that would just, you know, that my famous, well, that sort of favourite Buddhist saying of, you know, this too shall pass. That was very much their way of, meh, yeah. yes, it's awful, but this will pass. You know, things have happened before. And, li- and it's the, the other the other famous thing they do is live in the now, isn't it? Live right now. Is, yeah. Right now, the, at the moment, is what yeah. you should be focusing on. Don't worry about the future. Yeah. So that yeah, would and, and really extreme crazy stuff as well, of course, because, you know, the further you go out, out and do crazy. I remember going to a party at the back of Byron and the entire conversation was about, the um over the whole outdoor barbecue random thing <laughs> we were doing was all about the um alien spaceships that people have seen <laughs> in the valley over the last week and I'm like okay this is really different to what, what I'm being used to yeah I'm I bet. Like, okay guys yeah so you know that sort of re- completely realigns your reality and then I came back to business world so then I ended up doing a couple of years, one of the major contracts for Panasonic Group out of the US. Right. Um, they contacted me and said, we want you to move to the US. And I said, in your dreams. <laughs> and they said, okay, well, we'll let you commute. You can come into LA every month. Wow. So I did that for two years. Well, well, well what was the role, years. though? I want to know what that job is. I was basically setting up what I my startup inside their group, just setting up a whole new division. Oh, okay, for in-flight in yeah. entertainment. Yeah, so all of the commercial models that I'd done. So I'd, I'd done stuff. With, I did Like I did the first ever, with my startup, I did the first ever syndicated content for MSNBC out of Seattle. I mean, they did a global press release that, you know, that, that we'd done the full commercial. Because in those days you didn't buy content. No, it's just amazing, so, isn't it, when you think what a pioneer you were. Well, it's funny, I don't even, I, you know, I was thinking about that the other day and more I was thinking, Jesus, some of this has been hard work. Like, <laughs> holy crap. 
Yeah. But then you look at it and you go, well, of course, because no one's done it before. That's right. You make and it- I definitely, I, I definitely have the temperament that you know, like if someone says to me you can't do that, oh, I'm like, yeah, okay, watch this space. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, great. Um, <laughs> that's sort of my my sort of backroom. I was just reading there's a role. there's a great bangle brand in Australia that I love called B Bangles and I was reading out some of the um they, they've all got like pithy little sayings on them that I love but one of them which I saw yesterday and I'd forgotten and I thought I think I'm going to have to go and get it says underestimate me that'll be fun. <laughs> And I just, it's that whole thing of, you know, don't tell me it can't be done because that absolutely, if there was anything in the world that was going to fire me up, that's the sentence. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And also, like, you know, I laugh. I know you and I have had some chats over the last, you know, couple of weeks where we've laughed. But it doesn't mean that I haven't completely screwed something up, you know, and you're just going, what were you thinking? Like, why were you even thinking that? Like, I've had five startups now. Not all of them have been successful. No, <laughs> you know, no. Well, uh, well, like, well, that's it. And like, this, this is a podcast. This is a podcast for business women to say we're not all friggin' perfect, <laughs> and it's not always a straight Absolutely line not. from zero no, to success. Never, I would say it's never a straight line. Yes, and, I would. Too. And always, 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 I think if you are ballsy enough to get started and you're ballsy enough to get in business, you're already ahead of the curve, right? That's so right. you're already That's doing right. something. You're already doing something that's working. You're already doing something that works. Now, whether or not it's going to be a $200,000 business or a $200 million business, that's the difference between are you in the right space or have you got the right commercial model or have you got the right people on board? I mean, that's where the difference is. But yeah. Getting yourself out there and getting a business, that's ballsy in itself. And, could, and you yeah. can make serious money out of that. I totally agree. And I always remember speaking to the head of entrepreneurs organization many, many years ago when I had a bit of imposter syndrome was like, one day I hope to be an entrepreneur. And I remember and I said, I remember saying to him, and he said, You are one. And I said, Well, well, what how would you define it? And he said, loads of people can have ideas. And I do think this is really important that there are stacks of people that have great, brilliant business ideas, but hardly anybody actually gets off their ass and does it and gives it a go. And every failure that you have, and I think this is very commonly known in the entrepreneur's um, environment, is that it's a learning experience. There is no real thing as there's no really such thing as a complete failure because you always learn something. And if you are entrepreneurial and you start something else, you will build it knowing that you've, you know, been through that and that you know what to watch out for next time. Well, I think that's a great, it's a great um, piece of uh, information you've just given through, Jules, because what I think that also speaks to, and it's very relevant for women in business, it's very relevant for me. I mean, I have introduced over the last decade or so a pretty you know inbuilt meditation practice to get me out of this thinking and the thinking is that women are conditioned to think it that if we do something that doesn't work we bring judgment straight into the conversation and the judgment is you're either good or you're bad right you're good if you look like this you're good if you do this you're good if you're a size eight you're bad and no one is going to have anything to do with you if you're none of those things Right, yeah. and so one of the things that's really important from a, a personal perspective, I think, for developing a business idea as a woman is, you know, just a step more than what you were saying. It's not; it's absolutely a learning experience. Failure is an opportunity. Yes, yes, you're right. So Look. don't judge yourself. Don't stop yourself when you go. When you go to go, oh shit, you know, I can't believe I did that, or like. Like, why did I hire that person? Just go, okay, what was I thinking at the time when I hired that person? How did I get there? I'm never going to do it again. That's right. So try and stop yourself going into the, oh, man, I'm going to look like an idiot. People are going to do that. Yeah, whatever. That's probably true, but who cares? They're not. That's right. They're not going to have the upside experience from your achievement. And you can apply a little bit of Byron Bay thinking and go, you know what? If it's meant to be, it's meant to be. I mean, I definitely have that attitude as well where you go, if it hasn't worked, then there was something wrong with it in the first place and the next time you do it, you'll do it better. You know, like it's it's not 
yeah, yeah, it's exactly as you say, it's an opportunity. And it's great that you say that because um, I often say to people, what are the things in your life, in especially if you've been running a business, that initially can seem like it's an absolute disaster, but you can look back later and go, I'm so glad that happened because it led me in this direction that's taken me in another way that I possibly wouldn't have done beforehand. And it also gives you the opportunity. I mean, how many times do you go into a business and think, oh, I've got to learn these skills before I do that? Sometimes your business environment forces you to learn new skills. That's true. And if you didn't, if you didn't go into it, you wouldn't try it. No. You and wouldn't, they, you I, wouldn't, like, And so you would have a whole chunk of your 360-degree view of success missing that's because so you true. need to use that skill set. And therefore, that's going to come back to bite you. It's going to come back to bite you if you, when you're negotiating an exit, as an example, or negotiating a contract because you've decided to leave all the finance to somebody else and not worry about it yourself because you're the creative person. Well, I've been guilty of that in the past and been bit badly. Right. So now there isn't a thing about an accounting practice. Like, ask me a question. I can tell you. Do I enjoy that side of the business the most? No, but do I know I have to know it? Yes, you know what I mean. Yep. So yeah, that's that stuff is um, crucial. Is gold, and I think they're the things that build resilience under having a great idea and being able to execute. Yeah, big and, success and, and in the, startup land. You've got to be able to roll with it. You've got to be resilient. You do have to be resilient. and But I do think there's a lovely, uh, uh, the other saying I really like is ignorance is bliss. It's kind of that thing of what, if you don't know what you don't know, then you'll go ahead and give it a go. If you are, yes. if you inform yourself too much about something, you start building up fears, fear that I don't know enough, fear that I can't do it, whatever. Whereas you kind of go, um, what is that thing? Fools go where angels fear to tread. It's that whole thing of if you don't know what, what you should be doing. Like I love television and I recently had the opportunity of uh, presenting for a TV show. I think if I had known everything that's involved, I possibly would have been too intimidated and like, oh, my God, you need to get a whole lot of training. But the guy I was with said, nah, you can do it. <laughs> and I just did it and you just learn on the job. And it's it was great. But, yeah, I mean, if it, but if I'd probably researched a, a bit more into it, I would have been far more intimidated. It's like I, I love all yeah, those Yeah, and I think, I, I think that's also, you know, around the, the conditioning belief that somehow in that equation you're going to fail. By, by showing yeah, that's right. Up. That's right. You know, so when you sort of try and take that judgment away, away, even I know it's difficult because particularly as women, we're conditioned the entire time. Every piece of external input is around what we should look like, what we should do, what yes, we should yes, buy, where yeah. we should go, how we should behave. It's like, oh, stop it, it, go away. I know, <laughs> but it's. We can't not, as women, we can't not be affected by that. I mean, we all can say we don't like it and we don't want to live by it, but that's a lot to not Exactly. Absorb. I mean, that's it's it's in your bones. 24/7. That's right. And it's been bred into us from a very, very early age. But hopefully, mm. I hope that I can feel that there is a movement changing around the world with women and women are kind of claiming back their power a bit and... Um, you know, and it's good to see, but I, I agree with you. There's this, I mean, the whole imposter syndrome thing, I don't think really applies to men or very many men in very many areas at all, but it's all over the place for women. Well, and the counter to it is, which I love about women, I mean, you and I have had this conversation, which is, you know, we sort of say it to each other, like, screw it, we're going to do it anyway. Yep. What's wonderful <laughs> about women, when it's, when you've been conditioned to be, if you like, invisible, you there's no point telling people you're going to do it. We just go away and do it ourselves. That's right. I mean, that's, that's right. a little bit about the nexus of Surf Getaways. I mean, I got told in the very beginning of Surf Getaways. So I'm not a fantastic surfer. I love it. It's a religion to me. But, you know, the girls that coach and work for us, you know, they could run rings around it. Sort of like, oh, I started surfing when I was 30. You know, they've been surfing since they were two. Right. But right. I don't care. No. But one of the, the things that I was told in the beginning of the, of the business it's by primarily men because it's a very male-dominated industry, and, it, and that's fine. I mean, there are people like Lane Beachley that have done extraordinarily well, but, I mean, she's one person. Yeah, I know. She's the unicorn. Billion dollar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, I mean, Rip Curl is an example. Only appointed a female CEO. Can you believe it? 
two years ago. Yeah. yeah. So this is an industry very male dominated. And I was told in the very beginning, oh, you won't make any money out of this. Like, why are you doing this? Like, you're well, women aren't going to serve. What are you talking about? Like, and, and older really, women, even less likely. <laughs> yeah, well, they weren't even, they were not even, they, that was just like some sort of heresy. Yeah. Like, yeah. who are they? Like, so, so can I just interrupt you, though, for a minute and say we've ended up with you going back into corporate land. Can you just talk a little bit about what the light bulb moment was or what happened that made you go, right, I'm going to set up Surf Getaways? And then we'll go into what you're well, doing. Well, I've done, I've done startups before, right? And, and, and I was fortunate that I've been, been quite successful in my career. Right. So I was, you know, financially pretty stable. And then I did extremely well out of a startup that, that I worked with a couple of guys. We started for a million dollars and we sold it for 67 within four years. So what was that? Sorry, that, how, how did I miss that story? That was, a, that, was a, that, was a, that was a car company called Right to Drive. Okay. Um, in Australia. Yeah. Um, and it's a bit of a folklore story now because, again, one of those sorts of scenarios is a one-off. Like, you know, that happens even in people that are seasoned startup orientators. I mean, people made a lot of money out of that business. Yeah. Um, that's very rare that you that you have a company that is starts for one million and is sold within three years for that or three or four years within for that. It's kind of, of the dream, though. Um, <laughs> oh, well, that's what everyone's aiming for and I'm not saying people don't do it I mean there are companies that you know you've got companies Australian companies like Canva doing incredible stuff that well, are now valued at billions of dollars you know so yep. that dwarfs the right to drive scenario so I basically after that really was in a position you know which is I don't um I don't dismiss or um you know I'd worked really hard all my life so I in, you know I as far as I was concerned I'd earned it um Absolutely. But you had the opportunity to do something you just really wanted to do. do. And to do whatever I wanted. I mean, that's a pretty wild thing. I mean, I was told that before it happened that I I have some friends of mine that have have been very successful as well. And and a couple of them said to me, well, just temper it. And I'm like, what do you mean? They go, well, it's a very interesting conversation you'll have with yourself when you can sit down and you actually can do whatever you want. Yeah. Most people never have that conversation. Yeah. Think about that, and it was really true. Is if that, that's true, and you don't have a framework of what you want to do, the the, the, op- the options are infinite. Exactly, and how do you, you land drive, on you one? You drive yourself crazy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, it's so how did you land on this? What, what, what was it? At the time, I had a really good accountant who knew had known me for a long time, and yep. knew had known how long I, how hard I'd been working, and how long I'd worked. And I kept ringing him up, going. I've got this great idea. And he's like, okay. We let that go on for about two months. I must have driven him insane. Um, <laughs> and then he, oh my God, I rang him up about the third month and he said, right, we're going to have a conversation. I'm like, what? And he goes, because here's me, you know, used to sort of calling the shots and going, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. And he goes, you're not going to do any of that. I'm like, what? And he goes, you've got more money than you ever needed. You now can do whatever you want. I've got your power of attorney. You need to take some time off. You're going to go away. You're going to find a beach or a certain spot. I don't care where it is, but you're not coming back for a few months. And if you phone me or email me, I'm not answering it. <laughs> oh, I love him. <laughs> yeah, I know. And he said, so I don't want to hear about a business idea. I don't want to hear about it. You're not ready. Go away. Go. Get on a plane. Oh, don't come back. fantastic. So I did. I went travelling really off and on for about two years. Right. And then towards the end of that two-year holiday period, I – actually went surfing and I met one of the girls that's our founder, surfing founder, um, and she was doing these little surf tours, little surf groups out of Byron Bay and she's turned out to be one of my dearest friends now and obviously she's involved in one of the founding partners of the business. Um, Just hilarious and I was about two years in and I sort of did the experience. It was at a fabulous hotel in Byron her coaching was just fantastic. All the other women on it were all like me. They were women from business women out of Sydney that were just looking to get away. Oh, how awesome. They were young. Oh, we had the best time. We were hilarious, the five of us. And I found out Serena was taking a group to Fiji two weeks later. She tells she tells this story still where she reckons she said she was so um, bummed because by the time I'd got to Fiji, I did Fiji one two weeks later. Yeah. Because by then I knew actually I'm going to see – I can well, see a business here. Yep. Yes, yes, I'm going to go on this. 
And she thought, she said to me, I oh, still to this day, I'm so bummed. I thought it was my coaching skills that got you on the next tour. And she said, no, I realised you all want to do was get business. Oh, dear, oh, dear. I said, no, 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 it's just, it was your coaching skills as well. But anyway, after that, I came back and approached Serena and said, okay, um, okay. we need to sit down and have a conversation because I think I can do something with this if you're interested. And, of course, she was. And that's, so that was the beginning of Circulate. And so what? How, how did you end up in Bali? Because I think when I first met you, you said you'd been living there six years. So or was that part of the travelling? Sort of. So what I decided, and we're still sort of looking at doing that, although it's taken a little bit, of, we had a sort of a two-year dink in it because of COVID. But, um, again, I'm trying to make decisions this time around that are more sustainable for me personally because I think that's something business women don't do either that they don't understand that the better they feel about themselves the better their life is the better experience they're having every day the more successful you're going to be just yeah. you're going to be better at you're going to, you're going to show up better you're going yeah. to be more engaged you're going to be more um on your game if you like um i really like living in asia because of my growing up experiences my family spent a fair bit of time in and out of asia um and it just feels like home to me. So I came here on a surf trip, actually with one of our one of the surf getaways competitors in the very early days when I was putting the business together. And um, I just really liked it. I mean, it, it was never really on the long term agenda. If you'd have asked me, you know, ten years ago, are you going to end up living in Bali? I would have just lost your mind. Like what? Right. Um, but it's turned out to be really, we, we also were going to, we're still doing that, putting one of our main um, business infrastructure hubs here because the cost of labour and skills here is so low. actually really cheap. Yeah, yeah, but the quality of the skills are actually quite solid. Oh, yeah, cool. And it's close. It's close to Europe. It's close to the US. It's close to, you know, it's only a five-hour flight to Sydney. So it's not completely out of the game. And we have... Um, we bring a lot of tours in, as you well know, Jill. Well, I know you do, but I'm interested to know, were you living in, so had you decided to live in Bali and settle in when you had this business idea or has it all dovetailed together? Yes. It sort of was the same. It was about the same time. Right, all about okay. The same thing. I, yeah. knew, I knew that, that it was also going to be a, a pretty conducive place to have a surf business sort of as well and operate from here. Yeah, nice. Um, Am I wedded to here forever? No, I'm sort of, I really take things at the moment one year at a time. I don't need to be anywhere. anywhere. I like you don't need to be anywhere that, or doing anything, which is kind of a very lovely, luxurious position to be in. Yeah, sort of. I mean, obviously I've got family and stuff in Australia, but um, not, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not compelled that I have to. Like, no, I'm trying to live my life that way so that if for, for some reason, and you know that the next business concept we're about to launch is Women Explore, which is pretty exciting as well. But that may require me to be in the US. And if that happens, so be it. I'll move to the US. If I'm not, you know, it's not, um, I don't I don't see retirement as something I have to consider on the horizon. I can't, I don't really even understand the word. To me, it's just weird. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, to me, I, it's funny because, to me, retirement means being able to do whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it rather than having to do that daily grind. And you're past that now anyway. Like, you don't need to do the nine to five. So it is do whatever you want to do. And, therefore, I would never retire, ever. I'd just keep doing what you're yeah, doing. Yeah, well, and, well, yeah, I don't understand it either, though, because I think well, I sort of went through that experience of, like, okay, you know, five or so, six years ago when I could just do whatever I and I didn't have to set away, I didn't have a business responsibility. And it was horrible. <laughs> well, it's interesting you say that. Yeah, because I'm just about to have a woman who's retired come up back and work with me. She's run a very big business and she is bored out of her brain. Yeah. <laughs> and when I said, what do you yeah. do with your days? And she said, I cannot clean the windows and the floors any more than I already am. And I don't even yeah. know whether it's yeah. a weekend or not. And I thought, that's just so awful. And she's like, bring it on. Like, I just want to get stuck into something again. So I think well, that's... Assumption in retirement, in the way that Western worlds view it, I think, is that somehow, I mean, I understand the the premise, and I don't dismiss it at all. That you know, the need to have income and you know have a lifestyle, yeah, and so that 
And also the do, need but... to slow down a little bit. I understand all of that, that, you know, you, you especially when you talk about people who do manual labour, your body breaks down, but that doesn't mean your brain has. Exactly. And I think that's the big thing. Like a lot of illnesses and a lot of issues that arise as people age are because they have no sense of self-worth. Well, if you're not applying yourself to something and you don't think you're valued at doing something, how could you possibly have any? Yeah, yeah, and we don't have a culture that we don't have a culture that 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 instills that in people. We somehow have a culture that assumes everyone's just going to figure that out. And yeah, I mean, yeah. Well, I it's mean, crazy to me. Go on. It's crazy because there's such a huge wealth of wisdom in that time of people's lives, I know. and we don't encourage it to be shared. We don't encourage like absolutely fantastic that you're bringing someone in that's you know past her retirement age i mean the level of experience i know you're getting is extraordinary all the western world doesn't value that it's crazy i know i couldn't agree with you more and i do hope that as we have the biggest uh, bubble or whatever the word is of sort of over 50s which is sort of what I'm part of and we were the baby boomers yeah. and all the rest of it that yeah. there is no way that old age is going to be perceived the way it is in our parents and grandparents generation because there's too many people that don't act look feel do anything that would imply that they're ready to stop doing everything and start knitting for the rest of their lives do you know what I mean like I, I, it's <laughs> just not going to happen that. The innovation no, has to come. Not. No, I think that innovation well, is, is got to come. Well, and also the economics of it. I yeah. The economics of it starting to become really evident, which I think, you, as we know, you know, the, the commercial buying power of, of women post-50 is, is the, you know, some of the biggest on the planet. That's so right. It's crazy. How that's just been ignored for decades and decades and decades. Well, to be fair, I don't think that the I can think of my grandmother, for instance, yeah. Um. In the where would it be the sort of late late nineties two thousand early two thousands in her eighties it would never have even occurred to her to do, I mean I've got photos of her at fifty and she looks like she's eighty five or an eighty five year old now so I do think things have just shifted but I the, but when I see how vital we all are at this age now um I just yeah. think it's I think it's absolutely I'm with you a hundred percent it's insanity to think that. Um, you wouldn't want to tap into that in some way. And uh, certainly that's why I'm doing She's the Boss and trying to put the spotlight on all these amazing women like you. Now, we're going to have to wind this up, because, which I am loath to do because I could talk to you for hours and hours. Got one quirky little question for you, which is, well, not quirky, now I've given it away. Is there a quirky fact about you that most people don't know that you'd be up for sharing? And it can be anything. A quirky fact. A quirky fact. Something funny that you do that, you know, most people would be surprised. Oh, I don't know. What can I do that's a bit funny that people would be surprised? Something that you're... Probably my, yeah, my staff or family would probably not be able to that. <laughs> It's all right. It's, um, it's just one of those I'm things I ask. I mean, I've heard everything, anything from, uh, I think it was Kate Toon told me that she was the first person ever to do Graham Norton's red chair to somebody who told me they didn't have a belly button. Someone oh, told me they were an Olympic synchronised swimming champion when they were younger. And I was like, what? So it really doesn't matter. I mean, you could, you know, fart I the alphabet. Any of those things <laughs> I'm very jealous that you've done a... Mr. Norton Red Chair experience. That would be epic. I love him. I know. Oh, same. I, I don't know. I think I'm pretty boring. What else? What well, no, I, you, I don't oh. think so, Belinda. I think it's the opposite way around. I think it, and I probably would struggle with it. I think when you're really open about everything that you do, there's nothing really hidden. So, therefore, you've told lots of people, so you can't think of <laughs> anything that people don't I, already I know about you. Only- the only weird thing that probably people think that I, because I'm probably more tomboyish than I am elegant female, being a Sagittarian surfer chick, but <laughs> I did study classical ballet right up until I was about 14 or 15. Oh, wow. I, okay. I was too tall. I was way too tall. So you can imagine, like, being a ballerina that was, like, five foot seven, you'd, like, be towering over everyone. No, that's, so that's unfortunately my career on this well, thank goodness, because otherwise you wouldn't have done what you've done. And I'm so excited about what we're going to do together. I want to say a huge thank you for your chat. Do you want to just tell everyone um, the website address so they can get hold of you and any social social platforms that you love? So that if they wanted to get hold of you directly, they could do that. 
Yes, they can contact me from uh, email me at Belinda at. No, 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 I, no, 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 no. Okay, all right. You can do that, but I'm not thinking so much email addresses. I'm more like because you never know who's going to listen to this. It's more like give us the website address and then tell me if you're on LinkedIn or Instagram or whatever. Sorry, I'm a, I am on LinkedIn, and you can just find me under my name, Belinda Bradford, on LinkedIn. And the company website address is surfgetaways.com.au. All right. And the same surfgetaways in um, Instagram and Facebook. You'll find it. Wonderful. Well, you are such an inspiration and what a brilliant story. I can't wait to share this. So thank you so much for Thanks. for doing Jules. this. Oh, that's all right, Jules. My <laughs> pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. You always make me laugh and I love chatting to you. It doesn't matter where you are. Oh, thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of She's the Boss Chats. For more information and to find out about our other initiatives, including our weekly lunch for female founders and our TV show, go to she'stheboss.com.au.